Welcome to week two of What You Are Made For, uh, a huge two-part series that we're studying together as we look to God's Word. If you were here last week, we were talking about the mission of the church, right? We were looking at the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and seeing that we are called as individuals and also as a church family to exalt Christ, to equip one another, to extend His grace to an unbelieving world, and there's a bit of a coup, we introduced an unofficial fourth E to enjoy His presence together. This week, we are tasked with understanding the vision of the church. It's great to talk about the, three, the four E's, the three slash four E's, in terms of mission, but the question eventually becomes, how do we do it? Right? The question of mission is the question of what? What should we be doing? The question of vision is, how? <laughs> we know what we're supposed to do. What does it look like? That's, I mean, literally, what vision means. You use your eyes to see with vision. So what does it look like to carry out our mission? Our mission is the three slash four E's. Our vision is that as a church, we want to be making disciples for the glory of Christ and the good of the city. Our vision is that we are making disciples for the glory of Christ and the good of the city. So what is a disciple? Honestly, it's a question that's worth asking because confession time, sometimes when we talk at church, we use all these church words and things. Like there's a whole sub-dialect that we use as church people. There's big words like predestination and election and discernment and sanctification and discipleship. And if you've been part of the church for a while, you hear these words and your eyes kind of glaze over and everyone just assumes we know what we're talking about. And if you're not, if you haven't been part of the church for a while, these words are opaque. You come in off the street and you're like, sancta what? And disciple who? And what, what's actually happening here? I'm telling you, sometimes I understand if people would come into our church and just say, I have no idea what's going on. The way we talk as insiders who get it uh, needs some remediation. You know, this happens in other fields as well. It's, it's not just a church thing, right? Primary example, you go to the doctor. There is a, again, a whole sub-dialect of doctor speak. You know, you say, oh, just as a random example, undiagnosed abdominal pain. Well, you know, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. Let, here, let me write a prescription. Here, what is that? that? That word has 32 letters in it. Right, that's, so you're going to take that to the pharmacist. So you take it to the pharmacist, and they hand you a package that has a different 32 letters on it. You're like, but I thought, like, that's the generic name, that's the branded name. And Look, I don't speak doctor. That's why I married a nurse. <laughs> uh, I also don't speak math very well. How many people do not speak math well? Okay. How many people do speak math well? Woo! Yeah, all right. Uh, I spent some time with Dr. Ade at the college this week because he's helping with my dissertation, helping me analyze statistical data quantitatively. So I'm learning about independent t-test and Pearson's R regression analysis. And do you see how smart I sounded right there? <laughs> I don't know what those are. But I can say them out loud and feel smart. I don't speak math. Guess what else I don't speak? Youth Center. <laughs> Do you know that there, there is an entire language that youth culture has that is completely opaque to anybody over the age of youth? <laughs> and yet, let's see if we can do this. Look at this. Who's that? 
There's Dan Barbary. Dan Barbary speaks youth. And, and I think there's, there's, yeah, there's Chachi up there. And, and there's Jeanette. We have people in our church that speak youth center. And I don't know how they do it, and I admire all of you. And you should all join them because it's a riot. But I walk out there, and there's lights in the parking lot, and there's strobe, and there's color, and there's, there's shaving cream in people's hair, and there's ice cream in rain gutters. And I just say, I don't speak youth center. And then there are people who come here and some guy stands up at the front and starts talking about making disciples, exalt, equip, extend. And they're like, ah yeah, I don't speak church. What does that even mean? And one of our goals as a church is to try and avoid church speak. To try and avoid that dialect known as Christianese, but rather to instead take amazing theological concepts but present them at street level. Right? Accessible to anyone who walks in off the street to say, what is going on here? So, you, last week we looked at our bulletin where our mission appears at the top of the bulletin every week. And if we zoom in, I mean, first, <laughs> the first thing you should immediately notice here is all these things start with the letter E. That just immediately glazes people over. Right? It's just, oh, somebody tried to squish it all together so it all starts with the same letter. So you immediately just discount it. But nobody talks like this, right? How was your Sunday? Well, I exalted Christ this morning. <laughs> that, that's just not how people... Oh, how is, did you go to the Sunday morning seminar? Yes, we had an enriching time of equipping one another. <laughs> or extending His grace. Hey, did you serve at the open door? Well, yes, I did. I was able to extend the grace of Christ to an unbelieving world in meaningful ways. Maybe our unofficial fourth E isn't bad. Enjoy His presence. Did you enjoy Jesus? Yeah! <laughs> that one makes sense. The rest of these, though, and people walk in off the street and they're like, what are you even talking about? And so then you get to our, our vision statement. We want to be making disciples for the glory of Christ and good of the city. And you say, making disciples? What does that even mean? What is a disciple? Let me tell you how you shouldn't answer this question. You shouldn't put the Greek word for disciple up on the screen. That will not be helpful. Mathetes is the Greek word for disciple, for those of you listening at home. The, and the only thing that would be worse than putting the Greek, if you don't want to Greek out on all this stuff, the only thing worse than that would be putting the dictionary definition of disciple up on the screen, which, oh dear, there it is. One who engages in learning through instruction from another. Now that, that's important, actually. I'm not trying to diss the dictionary. We go way back, so I, respect to the dictionary. But this is actually valuable. One who engages in learning, but there's a second clause, right? Through instruction from another. So this is not an independent study or library research. It's not watching a YouTube video. It's relationship-based. Which is why the synonyms for it are like pupil, because it implies teacher. Apprentice, because it implies a master, someone you're learning from. So even when we're looking at a dictionary definition of what a disciple is, we're looking at Someone who is a learner and who does it relationally. Learning relationally. Say it with me. Learning relationally. When was the last time we did that in church? Maybe you'll remember it though. A disciple is one who learns relationally. But even then, eh, forget that. Because that doesn't help me know what it looks like. What does it look like to be a disciple? 
Well, again, we get back to this. If this is our vision to make disciples, I want to see it with my eyes. I want an example of it. Last week, we looked at exalt, equip, extend, and enjoy. And we looked at it through the great commission of Jesus as He was teaching and commissioning His disciples. And He was doing that propositionally, right? He was just telling them what to do. But discipleship, while it can be defined propositionally, we just did it, and I'm sorry, discipleship is better defined, perhaps, by seeing it in action. Observing it happening. Seeing examples. So to that end, this morning, I want to take us into the Gospels. Not, we're not going to the writings of Paul. Because he just says, here's who Jesus is, so here's how you should live. Okay. We're not going to the pastoral epistles. We're going to the life of Jesus. And I want to show you four snapshots from the life of Jesus of His disciples interacting with Him. And to try and present to you some models. Something that you can sink your... Something that you, can, something that you might be able to say, huh, I could do that. I'm proposing that I introduce you to four postures of discipleship. And I'm going to try and keep this from being abstract. I'm going to try and keep this from being propositional truth to which you must assent. But rather, I want you to see people. I want you to see Jesus' people interacting with Him. And there are four places in the Gospel. Now, I should even say this. This is not an exhaustive list. I have completely cherry-picked four passages out of the Gospels because I like them. So this is not like, here are always the four you have to go to to figure out what... There's far more to discipleship than just these four things. But these four were the ones that just... My heart was resonating. These are the, ones that my, these are the stories that came to mind almost right away when I said, what do I think of when I think of discipleship and people hanging out with Jesus? So let's jump right in. Here comes the first one. Dude in the top left corner. The first posture of discipleship. And that is to kneel before Jesus. To kneel before Jesus. Now we don't do a lot of kneeling these days. I don't know when the last time you actually kneeled before someone was. Uh, traditionally, a guy gets down on one knee to propose. That's kind of kneeling. Uh, perhaps standing is more of a, a, a cultural dynamic equivalent. A judge comes into the room and what do they say? All rise. And there's a standing that can, that's a communication of honor and dignity and respect towards someone. But kneeling? We don't, we don't kneel a whole lot. Some churches do. Some churches have those cool like flip-down things in the pews that actually encourage you to kneel because they recognize it as a posture of discipleship. To kneel before someone, to kneel at their feet, right? The feet. Is that not your favorite part of the body? Your feet. That's the part of your body in contact with the dust of the earth, especially summertime in Gloucester wearing flip-flops. That's the part of your body that gets smelly. That's the part of your body that is not the part that you want people's faces near. And yet, oftentimes through Scripture, we see these examples of people falling on their faces, kneeling at the feet of Jesus. Let's look at one. And you don't necessarily have to keep up by flipping around your Bibles with me this morning. I'm putting the important stuff on the screen, but you're certainly welcome to. But I would rather you try and engage your imagination this morning and listen to Scripture. I would rather you be able to follow along with your envisioning the dusty roads of first century Palestine. 
and the sandals. You know the ones in the movies that have the, the leather that wraps up the foreleg. Like, I want you to picture the, the robes and, and the attire. I want you to picture peasant villages and a more agricultural society. And I want you to picture the Lord Jesus walking and talking with His followers. But I would draw your attention to Matthew chapter 28 because it's this beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, Matthew 28, you'll recognize that's the end of the book. This is after Jesus has lived and done His ministry. This is after He has been arrested and falsely accused. This is after He has been beaten and crucified. This is after He has died and been buried. And this is after He rose again. In fact, this is the first thing that happens after He rose again. So I'd invite you to just listen as I read this text. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. But there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance, it was like lightning. And his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said. To come, see the place where He lay, and then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead and He is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see Him. Now I've told you. And then following, we continue on the screen here. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, kind of conflicted, and they ran to tell His disciples. But suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, He said. And they came to him and they clasped his feet and worshiped him. I can barely imagine that. Many of us have experienced the death of a loved one, and we don't get them back like this. Women going to the tomb, which is what we do we go to the graveyard, we go to the stone where our loved ones lay, and we go there to grieve and to mourn, we go there to, to talk to them, we go there to remember well. And these women were going expecting to grieve and mourn and instead they meet Jesus? What other response is there to the One who rises from the dead than to fall on your face, to fall on your knees at His feet and worship? What a beautiful posture of discipleship. Forget everything else. Fall to your knees and worship Jesus. One of the things I like about this whole idea of kneeling is that it's bodily. Right? We here in the educated upper north shore region of Boston, colleges all over the place, we play head games with our faith. And by that I mean sometimes our faith barely penetrates our heads. We intellectualize it. And we need to. We are to be renewed, transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to engage our minds. But man, it cannot stop at our minds. It needs to penetrate to our hearts. But even more than penetrating to our hearts, I would propose to you that texts like this remind us it should penetrate to our limbs, to our bodies, 
And one of the ways it does that is when it comes time to worship. I wonder if your experience of worship would be different if you engaged all of who you are, including your body. Not just your mind, assenting to the truths that we're singing. Not just your heart, emoting at Jesus. But your body. Imagine having to warm up for worship. What would it look like when you're singing a song of surrender to raise your hands and surrender to the Lord? Because that's a holistic approach to worship where all of you, hard head, heart, hands, all, one package, expressing submission to Jesus. Or when we're singing that we offer our lives to to actually symbolically represent, Lord, I, I, I give you my heart, I give you my soul. I grew up in a tradition where everyone would be sitting down in church on their chairs singing, I stand, I stand in awe of you. No, you don't. Or the tradition, this, is, this was my favorite worship posture. And we lift our hands before you as a token of our love. Yeah, there's a disconnect somewhere. Oh, I'm lifting my hands on the inside. Good. You know you're allowed to do it on the outside too, right? And I'm not even saying like good Christians raise their hands and worship... I'm saying we're made as physical beings. It's, there's not, this whole dualism, like spirit good, body bad, that's garbage. Your physical body has been a, given to you, created by God. You are to use it and involve it in worship. And part of that can simply be falling on your body's face in worship. Now, there's not a lot of room to do that in your pews. But you can kneel. You can step out from your pews. But don't even think of it as constrained to this room. You leave this place. The majority of your life is not here. It's out there. How does your body engage in whole life worship from Monday through Saturday? To be whole following Jesus. Not just following Him with our minds, but definitely following Him with our minds. Not just following Him with our hearts, but definitely following Him with our hearts. But even following Him with our bodies. And that we would adopt a posture. So, whether it's here in worship, if you feel like standing, you're allowed to stand even if everyone else is sitting, right? You know that. If you feel like kneeling when everyone else is standing, you're allowed to do that too. If you feel like stepping out from the church, we used to have people who would dance at the back. Now, they danced at the back because they were respectful and didn't want to be distraction to people, but they still danced. That's cool too. The point is, allow your body to be an outward representation of the inward reality of what God is doing in your life. And that's on Sunday morning, and that's with all of you, all week. Be whole. And as you worship. So I would challenge you, even this morning, I dare you, as we continue in worship later, involve your body. When you're at home doing your devotional time, and you're praying, kneel when you pray. And see if that doesn't change the way your heart and mind are actually experiencing the presence of Christ in that moment. There's something about when you connect all the pieces together. It is a more complete experience, and you'll know it. You'll feel it. You'll sense it. It's so good. Enough about kneeling. I could go on for kneeling. for, But what a beautiful text. Discipleship is the process of learning relationally. Yeah. But it's also just falling on your face in front of Jesus and involving everything of who you are in worship.
as a people who kneel before the living God. All right, that's Neil. Let's go to the green one in the top right corner. Let's look at another posture of worship. And this is to sit. Preschool, kindergarten teachers, who are you? Identify yourself and tell me, what's that posture called? Crisscross applesauce. That's right. That is the posture of a learner. That is the posture of a student. That is, we don't tend to do that in middle school or high school. Although if the class size is small enough, sometimes you can get away with it at the back of the class sitting on the desk. To sit at the feet of Jesus is the posture of a disciple. To sit at the feet of Jesus. And that, we don't do a lot of that either. Right? We don't do a lot of sitting at the feet of people. Maybe if you had a grandfather who was a really good storyteller, and when your family would get together and Grampy would sit in his rocking chair and all the kids would gather and sit at his feet, that might be the, one of the closest images we have to when Jesus would teach and people would come and sit at his feet because he had an authority and a wisdom that no one could fathom. And they were always saying, where does he get this stuff? Where did he get this wisdom with which he speaks? There's a passage in uh, Luke chapter 10 that I would invite you and your imagination into. Luke 10, verse 38 through 42. It's a familiar text. It's Jesus at the home of Martha and Mary. As Jesus and His disciples were on their way, He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to Him. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what He said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. This is actually how siblings interact, right? Now, what's... What's interesting about this text? There's so much here. It's hard to even scratch the surface. But if you can picture that, you've had people over for dinner before. You've tried to welcome people into your home, and you know, oh, that means we actually have to clean the house today. Shoot, that's, that's why we have people over. It's because it motivates us to clean the house. But not only that, you've got to prepare the meal, and then you've got to set the table, and these are all things that have to happen all at the same time. You're timing when the potatoes are done, with when the ham is done, with when the... That's just outside my skill set. And so Martha is distracted by all of this. And she's doing it and doing it. And what's her sister doing? Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what He said. Now, there's a world of stuff in here. First of all, women didn't do that then. Right? Educational opportunities were not afforded to women on a regular basis in the first century. So you, what you had here is Mary inserting herself counterculturally into a place that was reserved typically for men. The men would gather around their teacher, their rabbi, their, their leader, the elder from the village, and the men would all sit under their teaching, and the women would be doing what Martha's doing. So it kind of makes sense that Martha's like, uh, Jesus, Mary, but picture that posture. She's adopting the posture of a learner, of a disciple, of a student of Jesus who's sitting at His feet to hear His Word. 
And how does Jesus reply to uh, this sibling bickering? Martha. Martha! He has to get her attention. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. We all have our to-do lists. We all have all the things that need to get done. We're all busy and distracted. Notifications coming in on our phones all the time. And there's so much to do. How could we ever find the time to just sit at Jesus' feet and listen to Him? But that's what Mary does. And that is the posture of a disciple. She chose what was better. The chores will be there. The responsibilities, you can be faithful to them, and they don't have to be done right now. There is a place and a time for a regular, daily time to sit at the feet of Jesus and to soak in His Word. Is this part of your daily experience of following Jesus? Do you allow yourself to slow down enough from being distracted by many things? To sit at the feet of Jesus. It is remarkably inefficient in terms of use of time. It drives you crazy when you first try doing something like this. If this is not part of your regular rhythm of life, and you say, okay, I'm going to start my day what reading the Bible? I've got things to do. It doesn't take you very long before you're distracted by many things. And yet Mary is our example here. And Jesus commends her and calls her out for it and says, this is what a disciple looks like. She's sitting at my feet, listening to my word. It's the invitation to all of us to be disciples. We, we want to be kneeling at Jesus' feet, submitting our lives to Him, adoring Him in worship with all of who we are. But we also need to sit at His feet and learn so that we can grow ever closer to the likeness of Jesus and see Him transform our lives. Okay, so we got Neil, we got Sit. What's this dude doing? This guy's at work. I'm cheating. Work isn't really a posture, but run with me. This is how we're framing it. The idea of work says that Following Jesus is more than just having an ecstatic worship experience. Following Jesus is more than just sitting and studying and learning from Him. Following Jesus means doing life for Jesus. And that that's a posture of discipleship. Doing with Jesus. Mark chapter 6 has this amazing story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. You're familiar with this one. It's kind of famous if you've ever been to Sunday school. Mark 6. Oh, before I get there, describing it. Let me pick it up from, from the Scripture. We've got to set the scene, people. We've got to set the scene. Jesus feeding the 5,000. They go off. They try and get away from all the crowds by boat. Uh, but people saw them leaving. They recognized them, and so they ran on to foot. And people from all the surrounding towns actually got to their landing place ahead of them. How annoying. So Jesus lands and sees this huge crowd already waiting for Him. But starting in verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so, He began teaching them. 
By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already you know, very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? So Jesus says, how many, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they came back. <laughs> and they said, oh, we got five. We have five loaves, Jesus. Oh, and two fish. Don't forget the two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And he also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Okay, so amazing story. Jesus performing miraculously, teaching. Oftentimes when Jesus performs miracles, He's also teaching at the same time. Teaching He is the bread of life. He is the second Moses who was to come to provide uh, rescue for His people. Just like manna in the desert, Jesus now provides bread in the wilderness. What I find fascinating about this text is that Jesus could have done it all by Himself. And a glory hound would have done it. Can you imagine? Jesus says, all right, we got five loaves, two fish. He holds them up. Lord, thank you for providing for all our needs. And he leans over to his disciples. Watch this. And he starts handing out the bread. One loaf, two loaf, three, four, five. That's all he's got, right? Six, seven, wait, wait, what's happening? Eight, nine, ten, one hundred, one hundred and one, one hundred. What is going on here? And Jesus is like, I'm the Son of God. Like, it could have been very much a... a Look at how awesome I am moment. Now, interestingly, he has every right to do that because he is the Son of God. But what did he do instead? Jesus directed them, the disciples, to have all the people sit down. And then he gave them the loaves and the fish to his disciples to distribute. Now picture that scene happening. He breaks up the loaves. Gives thanks for it. Hands them out to his disciples. And his disciples are like, this is pointless. This is going to be a very short walk. Uh, one. Two. And imagine what's going on in the hearts and minds of the disciples. He's like, wait, that's three. Wait, where, that's four. Wait, how did my basket get full? Hey, Peter, how much you got in your basket? I got a full basket. Like, the, what was that moment like as they realized that Jesus was doing something incredible that no one had ever seen before. And now, I, I picture them like running and dancing and be like, woohoo, bread! Who wants bread? Like, <laughs> the moment would have been fantastic. And I think as a disciple, how much more powerful is it that Jesus chose to use them to accomplish His purposes? He could have just said, all glory's mine, which is His due. But instead, He invited them into agency. He used them to accomplish His purposes. And along the way, I'm putting money on the fact that they were transformed most of all. And they were even part of the cleanup crew. 
So as we go to our cookout today over at Stage 4, please be disciples and stay and help clean up all the extra baskets of fish. What a beautiful portrait of discipleship that Jesus wants to, you to be His hands and feet actually carrying out His wishes in the world. That He wants to use you and the unique way that you've been gifted and the unique way that you've been wired and the unique life experiences that you've had, whether they are good or hard, He wants to use you to accomplish His purposes. And when you do, I will put money on the fact that you will be changed most of all. This is the posture of a disciple. One who works as an agent of the living Christ. There's one last one. We've got to accelerate here. I'm getting excited. I've got to trim the package. Last one. What's this guy doing? Reverse planking. He is at CrossFit. It is not. He is reclining because the last posture of a disciple is that of rest. And this one's countercultural too. The last posture is a posture of rest. And I'm going right to Scripture on this one. And it's actually from Mark chapter 6 as well. If we jump in, Mark 6, sort of around verse 30, that the, the immediate context is that Jesus has just sent all His disciples out two by two in teams and they've been out there doing ministry in Jesus' name. They've been casting out demons. They've been performing miraculous healings. And they've been preaching, repent and be reconciled to God. And they all gather around Jesus, the Scripture says. And they were reporting to Him all that they had done and taught. And because there were so many people coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. Jesus said to them, whoa, 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 whoa. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And if that isn't a message, we need to hear as well. Is Jesus saying to you this morning, hey, come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. We can be so busy doing things for Jesus that we forget that He's right there and all He wants is to spend time with us. That as much as we can be doing good works and doing good deeds, and we can even do them out of gratitude and a celebration of what Christ has done for us. We're not even doing them to earn our salvation. We're doing them right as an overflow, a response to all that Christ has given us. But there's no end to what we could do. We can be distracted by many things, says Martha. Well, says Jesus. But in the midst of all of the chaos and the busyness and the potential for getting lost in the details. Jesus says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. I propose to you that this is hard. I propose, well, maybe it's just hard for me. Maybe you guys are all totally rested and relaxed. We used to have a saying at camp. Uh, north of Toronto, there's a camp run by InterVarsity called Pioneer, and I was sort of formed in my faith, and you'd have an hour off each day. And the senior staff would always tell us as, as cabin leaders, you have to rest. You're pouring yourself out into these kids 23 out of 24 hours of every day. You get one hour off. They would say the most spiritual thing you can do is sleep. We called it sleeping for Jesus. <laughs> but what, what would we rather do? We'd rather hang out with our friends who also had their hour off at the same time. And we would drain ourselves and we would not be able to, to run the full race. 
We'd burn out before the summer ended. We'd go home. And we'd miss out on the last three weeks of what God was doing at Pioneer because we wouldn't rest. Rest is foundational to how we're made. God modeled it in creation. He commanded it in the Ten Commandments. Jesus fulfills the ultimate Sabbath rest of God's people. We are still called to emulate God and to rest. What does that look like in your life to adopt a posture of rest? Okay, we need to land this plane because there's a baptism coming. We got four postures to kneel at the feet of Jesus in worship to involve all of our bodies holistically as whole people created by God. We're to sit at Jesus' feet to adopt the posture of a learner. We're to work for the glory of Christ and the good of those around us. And we are to rest. Now there's, there's some interesting things about that. In summary, I want you to notice two things about this. Number one, none of these things happen alone in Scripture. Did you notice that? It's always people together. Right? Neil, Mary, and the other Mary are together as they go to the tomb and they drop and worship Jesus. Mary and Martha at their house and all the guests, they open their home, all the disciples, and everyone together is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Working, whether it's the disciples involved together, whether they're, even when they were sent out, it was two by two. It is with other people and rest. Jesus says, come away with me. With me, all of you together come away with me. He's talking about a, a retreat. He's talking about Getting away together. He doesn't say, look, everyone's tired. Go home, get a good night's sleep, and I'll see you back here at 0700. It's always in community. There are very few instances where Jesus just does the one-on-one. It's almost like we're designed to live in community or something like that. And so the first thing to see is, is all of these postures are not just me and Jesus postures. They're we and Jesus postures. We do this together. The second thing I want you to see, and, and I'm telling you this is honest, okay? But if you notice how these map on to the four E's, I did not see this coming, and I promise you I did not choose these texts for this purpose. But when we're kneeling at the feet of Jesus, what are we doing? Oh, we're exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're sitting at His feet, we are learning and equipping one another. When we are working for Him, we're extending His grace. And when we rest, we finally get to enjoy, just stop and enjoy His presence. And I'm saying, I did not see that coming. But there it is. So what an interesting juxtaposition. Last week, we look at the four E's and we approach, what does it mean to exist? What are we made for? And we looked at it propositionally. Exalt, equip, extend, and enjoy. And this week, how do we do it? And we looked at it narratively. We looked at it to say, what are the examples we see in Scripture? We are to kneel and sit and work and rest. So I have this for you. Some of you got bulletins. And there's a bulletin insert in there. And as you try and synthesize all of this, maybe this is helpful. And if it's not, throw it out. Who cares? But if it is helpful, use it. Across the top, you can see the four postures there. And there's four lines. You should probably fill them in. Right? That's the fill in the blanks thing. Kneel, sit, work, rest. And maybe even under the line, exalt, equip, extend, enjoy. Part of that is just internalizing that language so we don't glaze over when we see it. But I want to invite you to go one step beyond just knowing that this is true into living it as truth. So this second part that says this fall, 
I'm being invited to grow as I kneel before Jesus. This fall, I'm being invited to grow as I sit at Jesus' feet. This fall, I'm being invited to grow as I work with Jesus. This fall, I'm being invited to rest with Jesus. In a few moments, I'm actually going to give you some silence in which I'm going to ask you to take that question before the Lord. It's kind of the same question as we had last week. So if you didn't get around to it, hey, look, you get a second shot. But the point is this. God very rarely says, you've got to work on everything in your life all at once. Usually, he says, let's pick one thing. Let's see you grow here. So part of what I'm inviting you to do is to put your life in your hands and lift it up to the Lord and say, Lord, speak. Where do you need me to grow? Where can I experience more of your presence? How can I be a disciple that honors you in every way? And give him space to answer the question. It might be a burden that comes. Like, I just wish I was more free in worship. That might be a sign of the Lord saying, hey, let's work on that. Let's put Neil in that blank. It might be, some of these you might dread. <laughs> I don't want to do any more work. Well, maybe Jesus is actually using that dread to confront your presuppositions and say, actually, you need to think differently about the way you're already working. Or maybe there's one you're just so desperate for. You long for. And Jesus might just be saying, look, it's time to rest. Whatever it is, I would invite you to take that question before the Lord. It's not me inviting you to grow, right? Let's be clear. I am being invited to grow by Jesus. Listen to His voice and follow His lead. And then there's a follow-up question that says, do something about it. This fall I will take a concrete step by doing something about it. And don't write doing something about it in the blank. But so that I can learn from Jesus together with others. This is the learning and relationship. Learning in relationship. So whether it is kneeling, I want to explore worship or, or study or, or work or rest. What is a context that you can choose to help you learn to do that better together? Whether it's uh, emailing info at to say, I would be interested in a one-on-one sort of discipleship relationship. Is there anyone you could recommend to pair me up with? Or it would be, you know what, this fall I'm going to join a small group because those are about to launch. They're right around the corner. What a great time to consider joining a small group where together with others, you can work on these postures of discipleship. Maybe it's joining a ministry team. Maybe it's going to the open door dinner tomorrow night. You can do something. I would challenge you before the church email comes out this week. Do it. And when the church email comes out this week, you're going to go, oh, I was supposed to do it. So you can do it quick before you read it. Regardless, it is never our desire to simply communicate interesting information and then send you home and you can say, wasn't that interesting? Our heart's cry is that you interact with the living God, hear His voice, and move closer to Him as you follow that voice. If this is a helpful tool, use it. If it's not, throw it out and just hang with Jesus and follow His lead. But in all of this, the point in these first two weeks Yeah, part of it is to remind you the mission of our church is to exalt Christ, to equip one another, to extend His grace, and to enjoy His presence. I keep adding that. And it's to remind you of the vision of the church, that we're to be making disciples for the glory of Christ and the good of the city. But in all that, we're really asking, what are we made for? We are made to be followers of Jesus. So let's follow Him together. 
I'm going to open in prayer. I'm going to leave a bit of silence. The worship team is going to scramble to cut songs while they figure out that I went way over. And then in a few moments, I will again close in prayer and the worship team will close us in worship. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You do not just tell us what to do, but You give us examples in the Gospels of what it meant, what it looked like to walk and talk with You, to be followers of You. And as a church, that is our desire. We want to love You more. We want to follow You better. We want to live our lives in obedience to Your Word. And we want to enjoy simply resting with You. So in all of this, Father, we ask, even now, in this space that follows, speak to us, O God. Take one of these postures and lay it heavily upon our hearts so that we can leave this place with one thing that we can take with us and saying, I think this is how the Lord wants me to grow. And then, Father, I pray for relationships in this church, that you would continue to be weaving this church together in relationships that are focused on you, where we are helping one another grow, and we experience the safety and the love of being chasing after you together. We want to be disciples, and we don't want it to just be Christianese. We want to follow you. We give you this space to speak. 